This episode of Breaking Brave is brought to you by Soul Snacks. Soul Snacks are single ingredient, eco-conscious dog and cat treats sourced directly from farms in Ontario and wrapped in fully compostable packaging. Treating your pets never felt so good. Use coupon code BREAKINGBRAVE for 15% off on soulsnacks.ca. That's soulsnacks.ca. This episode is also brought to you by Crank Coffee, the newest member of the Neal Brothers family. Crank Coffee is a new Canadian whole bean coffee brand that is certified organic and fair trade, founded by the Neal Brothers, Peter and Chris. This brand was influenced by cycling, coffee lovers, and experts. Check it out at the Neal Brothers online shop and use our coupon code BRAVE for 20% off your first Crank Coffee purchase. Enjoy. Welcome to Breaking Brave. I'm your host, Marilyn Barefoot. Today I am chatting with Mr. Neil Hetherington, the CEO of the Daily Bread Food Bank, the largest food bank in Canada. We want you to please open your wallets and open your hearts and open your emails because during the conversation we talk about some of the advocacy things that all of us can do to make a difference for people who are living below the poverty line. It's a tough situation and a brave conversation. Please welcome Mr. Neil Hetherington. I am honored and thrilled and so privileged today to welcome our guest, Mr. Neil Hetherington, who's the CEO of the Daily Bread Food Bank. Welcome to Breaking Brave, Neil. Thank you for having me. Really, really appreciate it. Well, and we're recording this, I'm going to say it right off the top, on December the 2nd. Um, we want to put this out into the big world before the real crunch of the holidays, because I'm assuming that this is always a challenging time of year for the Daily Bread Food Bank, but especially when we're now facing Christmas or holidays number two with COVID. Can you just tell me about the pressures perhaps you guys may be feeling throughout the month of December with everything happening? Yeah, so December is a, a very busy time for uh, for the food bank. But interestingly, you know, I had always made the assumption December must be crazy for food banks because that was the time that I was giving to food banks. But it actually, the, the time that's busiest for food banks is July or August in, in, in summer months. That's because meal programs at schools are shut down. There's an extra mouth to feed. And so we are busy in December bringing in food that we really need to, uh, to have um, distributed during, during the summer months. And, uh, and so thinking about that for sort of July and August, during the pandemic, when schools were closed, it meant that more and more people needed to make use of food banks. And then, of course, you have the compounding factors of uh, a collapsed economy in, uh, in, in many areas uh, that is only starting to recover. And we have seen uh, food bank visits increase from about 1 million visits, which was already a, a crisis. That's a pre-pandemic number going from 1 million to 1.5 million in the course of, of a year. And so it has been an operational challenge uh, like, like none other that, that I've uh, worked through. Yeah, 
would take a moment to digest that, sort of speak. But the the thing that I was reading about with you and the Daily Bread Food Bank, and this is why I love doing this because I learned so much. I never, as an individual, thought about COVID as it relates to all your volunteers, people in the warehouse, people that would normally, as consumers be dropping off food donations at fire halls or grocery stores, and how that whole, if you want to call it even the behind the scenes part of it, was hugely affected by what, what's what gone on. Could you maybe chat with us just because I was fascinated to see how you had to behind the scenes, if you will, make all of these adjustments in order to keep your own volunteers safe? Yeah, so we, pre-pandemic, we'd have about 120 volunteers every single day here at uh, 191 New Toronto Street. And that was great. And they they sorted food and uh, and helped us in our warehouse, and we got the food out. So pandemic starts, and the number of shifts that we had to make operationally were, was so incredibly dramatic. And we had to decrease the number of volunteers from about 120 down to 20. And uh, and with that, um, you know, the, the question became, can we achieve our goal? And our goal, it, thinking back to March of 2020, was very clear. Our goal was we would make every single uh, delivery of food for no matter what the, 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 the number of clients were that were coming to us. So no matter what the number of clients, we will make every delivery on time safely. And uh, really um, proud of the team in that uh, we hit that goal. And as we decreased the number of volunteers, we became very worried. Like, how would we do that? How would we sort the food? Well, um, it, it, maybe it was a mixed blessing, but the amount of food that was being donated was dramatically declining. Uh, people were not mm. dropping food off at a food uh, at a fire hall. They weren't going to grocery stores and dropping off food in our yellow bins. Uh, they were nervous, obviously, about uh, about doing something like that. And so, um, but what did happen was the community rallied. The community saw what was going on. And they saw the lineups of the uh, uh, hundreds of people right around the the block here. They saw the lineups happen very quickly. And so they made monetary donations, and that allowed us to buy bulk uh, food. It allowed us to uh, to buy skids of peanut butter or tuna or whatever the uh, the the uh, grocery item was, and it meant we didn't have to sort the food anymore. So <clears throat> it was very helpful from uh, from that perspective uh, in an operational context. Thank you so much. But we were in a crisis before we hit the pandemic, you know, food insecurity in this city, in this country, in this world is a huge issue. So what were you dealing with in advance of the pandemic? And I I know you've given us some numbers, but this whole issue around food insecurity, I know that a lot of the advocacy work that you do is to get at the root of the problem. Yep. And, And feeding people is huge, but... It's just scratching the surface. So maybe we could talk a little bit about that advocacy work that that you that you do. Sure. You know, there's a uh, there's a lawyer by the name of Brian Stevenson, a civil rights lawyer in the United States, who has a wonderful quote, and he says, "The opposite of poverty is not wealth, but justice." 
And, mm. and, and, and I believe that to be true. And so you ask, well, what were you dealing with before? The issue that we were dealing with before was a justice issue, that there were uh, injustices that were happening on, a multiple, uh, on multiple levels. And they, they manifest themselves uh, through, and where they, through the food insecurity problem that we have across the country. So food insecurity is not a food issue, to be very clear. Food insecurity is an income issue. It, it is a question of do people have the amount of, of income that they need to be able to afford the very basic necessities of life? And um, is their right to food, is their right to housing being realized? And the answer for too many Canadians is absolutely not. I was reading that it's a black or white issue for people in Toronto in terms of paying bills paying rent, and then the ability to take a trip to the grocery store, maybe on the TTC, when they only had $7 left after paying bills, paying rent. And that $7 was essentially what they would have needed to use for the food. And so it's a it's a choice. It's an either or. It's a black and white. Yeah, it's uh, we issued the Who's Hungry Report uh, 2021, and uh, um, the amount of money that individuals have after paying for rent is startlingly uh, uh, sparse. Like, so as you mentioned, um, about seven dollars, uh, and and the number de- decreases to about six dollars for those in the BIPOC community. And mm-hmm. so you and I, nobody can survive on, on, uh, on that type of uh, uh, income after paying for, for our rent. And so th- there does need to be that choice of, uh, of heat or eat. Um, you know, do you have shelter or do you, or do you provide the food that, uh, that your, your family needs? And that's where uh, food charity has stepped up. But as much as we're providing the food and filling in that gap, for every box that we hand out, for every uh, uh, fresh pallet of, of, of eggs that we are providing to a food bank customer, we are advocating for, for systemic change. So that means that we are talking about income security. Um, you know, somebody who is on disability uh, makes about $1,250 a month. So you, t- you take, well, what's the average cost of a one-bedroom apartment? So you take that cost, that's $1,700, you're 500 bucks under underwater to begin with. So maybe you might be able to get a bachelor apartment for, let's call it $1,200. you are still at nothing. And so it is incredibly difficult for somebody on some of the income uh, security programs that we have to be able to survive. And I, I'm not sure how we morally justify um, that everybody who is on disability ought to be at the poverty line or below. I, I, it just it, it does not make any uh, sense to me. So, uh, so we do advocate. We do look at income security. We do look at affordable housing. We look at pathways to employment. So many different areas that each of them, we lay out sort of clear recommendations. Here's what we need to do to move forward to be able to decrease that lineup that's going around the block. The lineup triggers me with a story that I read about you arriving at work and running into a friend in the lineup that was a WestJet pilot with five kids, if I'm correct. And obviously the airlines were completely slammed, as so many other industries were. 
he was furloughed and and there he was in the line. So it happens to everyone or can happen to everyone. Maybe you could uh, just talk about that story a little bit, Neil. Yeah, well, you know, as as you as you, you recounted, it's 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 just that um what potentially could have been an, an awkward moment. You know, I was nervous. I, I saw him. He saw me. It was one of those cocktail party moments where you're like, we saw each other. Are we going to go say hi? And and I, I, I walked over because I had debated it, um, you know, instantly debated, do I go over? You know, maybe, maybe he's not going to be thrilled that um, I'm seeing him in this circumstance. And then I thought, you know what, if I was him, I was having a really difficult time, and I was crossing that threshold of the doorway into a food bank. I'd want to be with somebody rather than isolated, and I'd want to know that there was somebody walking alongside that journey with me and cared about me. So I went up. We had a nice conversation. I got to find out what was going on in his life, and um, you know, we saw lineups at food banks, like within weeks of the shutdown, increase dramatically. And what that says to me is that there is a lack of resiliency in our our population to be able to deal with any acute shocks. And therefore, it is it is probable that uh, that somebody who you are sitting beside on the subway or uh, streetcar knows somebody or is an individual who is food insecure. And so let's hopefully use those stories to uh, walk alongside the individuals and uh, and say how can we advocate together so that we can uh, we can build a uh, build back better as we've often talked about which means you know how do we how do we avoid situations where as many of our food bank users are in where they're cobbling together two jobs to be able to make anything uh, to, to make ends meet and when they do that, they don't get benefits. They don't get medical and dental benefits. So now, let's say you're you're a single parent, and and that child that you've got has uh, has medical uh, needs that uh, require uh, or prescription costs that are above your means. Um, then you you hit into this very difficult decision of you know would I be better off not working? We we often put these barriers in in uh, in place, so that that brings about questions of uh, universal pharmacare. It brings out questions about uh, universal affordable childcare. These are the types of things that we can advocate for when we recognize that affordability and uh, income security are much closer to home than we think. And uh, and so yeah, you know, I was I was uh, saddened to uh, to see that um, friend in uh, in line. I know that he got the food that he and his family needed for the uh, for that week, and that he would be welcome back uh, as long as as long as there is a need. So Neil, I'm going to ask this a couple of times as we go through the podcast for our listeners. But right there, how can we help you the most right now? And we're just assuming, given that we're December the second, and there's a new variant out there, and we don't we don't know what the end is going to be, or what what when we might be able to say we're through it, if ever. How can we help you and support you the most right now? You know what I would love is people listening to this podcast. Just press pause for one second. You're probably not going to like this answer, um, but if they if they if just press pause and come back in like five minutes, and in that five minute pause, go online 
and and send your elected official a note that just says, hey, I listened to this podcast and I think you need to implement the poverty reduction strategy. And it doesn't matter which level of government you're writing to because all three levels of government have a poverty reduction strategy. And so if, if you pause the podcast, go send a two-second note and say, it's important, then things will start to change. And those poverty reduction strategies touch upon each of those areas. So that, that is what we can do that will start to decrease the line. So I'm glad people are back. They've, they've paused. They did it. Now they're back to the podcast. They're going to listen to, to the end. And, and the other two things that can be done after you advocate is to, if, if, if you're able, to uh, you know, make a food donation uh, at any fire hall or any grocery store uh, or make a monetary donation. Both of those are appreciated, but it's that first thing, that taking that step, having the conversation on advocacy with your kids and saying there, there are a lot of uh, people out there that right now are suffering and they're suffering because we've made choices that, uh, that cause a greater disparity between those who have and those who don't. Yeah, that's the big solution. That's the longer term. That's the broader picture. It's the bigger, longer-term fix that needs to happen. Um, maybe, Neil, I can tell you a story right now because it, it, right. it just it, it came to me. <laughs> I did a lot of work when I had my own agency with Campbell's Soup that's very close to you where your actual warehouse actually is around New Toronto Street. Um, and we used to help the schools in the neighborhood by going in and serving hot stew or hot soup. And I volunteered for that on a regular basis. But there was one day when we went in and and we were serving soup, the 48-ounce cans of tomato soup that would be able to be put into a warming kettle and given to the kids. And there was one little boy who, after the bell had rung and everyone was supposed to be out in the yard for recess, he stayed and he stayed and he stayed. And he asked me if he could have another bowl, and then he didn't say anything else. And I offered him another bowl, and he said yes. And then I offered him another bowl, and he said yes. And he stayed until the very end. And I said, are you still hungry? And he said, I will be tonight. And I said, okay, how can I help with that? And he pointed at some of the additional cans of tomato soup, the 48 ounces. And he said, what are you going to do with those? And I said, well, I guess we were planning to take them back to Campbell's. He said, could I have them? And I said, absolutely. So we packed them into his backpack and off he went. That might have been 20 years ago that this happened. And it still rocks me to my core. I bet. I bet. No child should ever have to ask for that. Like that's and he stayed back because I felt like he was embarrassed, right? To yeah. to say that or ask for that or have a second or third or four, fourth bowl of soup in front of his friends because of the judgment that that might bring on, right? Yeah, no, that's fair. And you know, there of food bank clients, um, about uh, one in three, just under one in three, uh, have a child who hasn't had a meal for at least one day per month. Um, that's, that's a, you know, you add up the number of food bank clients that we have, then you take that 30% and you think about the number of, of, of days, um, that that is happening annually. Um, just in, in a country where, uh, food isn't an issue, you know, we have, we have, we have great, um, 
Uh, we've got great farmers. We've got great processes to be able to make sure that everybody should have access to that food. But we that's not the case because the incomes aren't as they should be. Um, and as a result, you have a horrific story like the one you just told, Marilyn. Yeah, that little face, it stays with me. Um, Neil, let's let's jump to a 30,000-foot view around you for a second. How did you as a man decide to get into not-for-profit? Because before you were at the Daily Bread Food Bank as the CEO, you were with Habitat for Humanity, both Toronto and New York. And before that, you were with the Dixon Hall Neighborhood Services. Where was the calling in you, Neil? Or what what was the story that said, I want to do this with my life? Well, um, you know, I'd like to say it was as planned out as as as, as you're you're making it out to be. It, it, a lot of things in life just happen, um, and uh, and in my case, I think there's a little bit of that. So, from a, a background perspective, my my grandfather was the international leader of the Salvation Army. So he was a man firmly committed to uh, to improving the lives of those who uh, who were experiencing poverty. And he was a wonderful communicator, brilliant, brilliant uh, man, General Brown. And, uh, or, well, I called him Grandpa. And, um, <laughs> and, and it's nice to know his real name. Too, <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Great. So, so he um, certainly a, a, an incredible influence, like my parents uh, uh, obviously had. And um, and I, I went through uh, uh, high school and university, and uh, and thought the best thing that I I could do is uh, is, is uh, be successful in the for profit sector, and I had a great opportunity to work at a, a a developer, and really enjoyed it. But I had a gap year, uh, and uh, in that year, I had built Habitat for Humanity homes in Africa and, and Eastern Europe, and um, and there was something about the moment where. Uh, keys were presented to a family that, uh, and you saw instantly uh, on a porch, their lives changed. That um, I just thought to myself, you know, I could, I could really, really get involved with uh, something that is mission driven rather than shareholder driven. And and so um, five years into uh, Tridel. I was 25 at the time. I applied for the the CEO job of Habitat for Humanity in Toronto, and they gave it to me, which makes no sense on paper uh, whatsoever. <laughs> um, and I've been very, very fortunate to um, uh, to have been able to uh, to lead different organizations, Habitat, Dixon for a small period, and now uh, Daily Bread. And I, I count myself every time I do a, a little video or for, for our marketing team here, when I have to introduce myself, I always say, my name is Neil Hetherington. I have the awesome privilege of being the CEO of the Daily Bread Food Bank. And it truly is an awesome privilege to, uh, to be able to serve alongside a huge number of volunteers for a mission that matters and being able to uh, work with the community uh, as a whole to be able to uh, fulfill the need for now. But hunger doesn't wait for, for social policy to change. And so while, that, while, we, while we advocate for those policy changes, we're going to feed the need now. Thank you. That's great because I, I didn't realize that your grandfather was so involved with the Salvation Army. So that, that gets into your core as a young individual, and I could certainly see 
how that shaped where the future ended up for you. But you don't just serve Toronto. The Daily Bread Food Bank is also partnered with, I think I read, 170 other food programs. How far-reaching are you in terms of the assistance that you're, you're providing? I would, I would love those 170 programs to be you know, across the country. But the reality is that's all in one city. That, that's, okay. just, that's just here. Um, And that speaks to the need, um, you know, that we need to essentially uh, have within walking distance a food bank of uh, virtually every corner of the the city. Um, You know, people are, are surprised that one of the highest needs areas that we have is within the highest income neighborhoods in the Rosedale area of of the city. There's food banks there, multiple food banks there. There are food banks in Forest Hill, another very uh, exclusive neighborhood of the the city. There's still food banks there. Poverty is uh, regrettably all around us. Uh, so our work is to deliver food in Toronto, but the advocacy work that we do is at a um, primarily a provincial uh, and to a lesser extent federal level. Fabulous. I read that Sister Marie Tremblay was the founder of the Daily Bread Food Bank. How long has the Daily Bread Food Bank been in existence? We're uh, we're coming up on uh, forty years, and wow. uh, and you know when she founded it, it was it was really meant to be a very short term uh, uh, um, uh, response to an immediate need. And uh, I don't think any of the founders would have thought that uh, we would still be around some 40 years later. She passed away uh, just about three weeks ago. Um, I didn't uh, know that. She's a sister of the Sisters of St. Joseph, and uh, and so we had to make the calls to the previous executive directors, Gerard Kennedy and Sue Cox, Gil Nyberg, and uh, and to say one of our, our own has, has uh um, passed away. But, you know, I hope that for her family, that there is that sentiment of um, job well done, uh, you know, that uh, that she has left a, a legacy of, of care in the community. Wow, did she ever. Wow. I have this question about, I've been doing a lot of reading and research about grocery stores and grocery stores that have less than perfect looking carrots. And they figure that the less than perfect looking carrots are not going to sell because they're less than perfect looking and they end up in places they shouldn't end up like the garbage or landfill or whatever. Do grocery stores help you other than being a place where people can make donations, but the grocery chains themselves, do they help you? They do. Uh, the grocery stores definitely do help, and and certainly uh, food rescue is a big part of uh, what we do. You know, the greatest percentage of food waste happens at the farms. Um, there's about forty percent of of food that is is wasted there by crops that have to be plowed under because there might be a change in uh, pricing, uh, things like that. And so we go direct to farms now. And we have a 53-foot trailer that is uh, that hauls down to uh, to various parts of southern Ontario, and we bring in food from the the farms. Perfectly great, good uh, food. And there's a couple of things that we do with it. One is we make hot meals with it. So uh, we'll we'll make a lot of carrot soup, a lot of potato leek soup, and we will freeze it and send it out to community uh, community programs. And then the other thing is that we distribute it directly to the clients. 
When people think about the food bank, they often think about, you know, cans of boxes. But the reality is 50% of what we send out, just under 50% of what we send out is fresh food. It's milk, it's eggs, it's, uh, it's, it's fruits and vegetables. And given food pricing, those are the things that we'll continue to, uh, to, to focus on. We have seen food prices escalate by about 7% this year, which for a family of four represents about $700. And going back to what we were talking about earlier, on average, somebody having you know seven or so dollars a, a day after paying for uh, their housing simply can't afford that extra seven hundred dollars a year. No way. I read something on LinkedIn recently about food banks in general, in that, for example, and this was the example they provided, oh, people are great at handing or donating boxes of macaroni and cheese, but they don't think about the butter and milk that's required to actually prepare the macaroni and cheese. And I didn't think about that. You know, stupidly, it's like, oh, non-perishable goods. Okay, so so where do the where does the milk and the eggs and and the fresh do people donate this or how does that all work? You have to have the monetary donations to buy this. Yeah, that's exactly the way it is. So, um, as I said, people often think food banks are canned and boxed goods. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is that's about fifty percent of what we uh, de- uh, deliver. Those are the things that are often donated uh, to us that we screen and then send out to the community. The uh, the remaining fifty percent are things that are purchased and they come from industry. Uh, so they come from the milk board. They come from the chicken farmers of uh, of Ontario, and we will make those purchases for the clients, so that uh, yes, when they're preparing uh, their meal of uh, whatever they choose, that there is the milk and the butter to uh, uh, make that happen. And Neil, do these organizations like the dairy farmers and the chicken farmers do they? give you fabulous pricing? Do they donate? Do they, they must have a line within that they could have some kind of charity giving within the work that they're doing as well. Uh, we we get good pricing. Um, I think that there's always an opportunity for us to be able to uh, reduce that pricing. How was that? Well, that was kind of kind of nice and PC. Case, case oh, one I'm the- like, wow, there's a media trained answer if I ever heard <laughs> one, Neil. <laughs> but I'm pretty sure everybody got exactly what I was saying. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. I'm going to, for a second, I'm going to take a left turn and say, outside of the very incredible work that you're doing with the Daily Bread Food Bank, you sail and you fly. So This is Breaking Brave, and all the work you're doing with the Daily Bread Food Bank is incredibly brave, and thank you for that. But let's, if you don't mind just telling us the story of your planned trip on June the 5th of 2019 on a sailboat called Boundless. I would love to hear that quick story because it's nice for our listeners to have the full picture of Neil. Well, it... um... Uh, you know the the title of Breaking Brave might 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 apply here a little bit, but uh, had a had a great opportunity to uh, to go with my cousin who is an incredible sailor and two others um, to sail from uh, Whitby to Portugal and uh, fourteen hundred miles off the coast things turned uh, bad for us uh, a rogue wave hit the boat and uh, uh, and we needed to make the call to abandon ship. 
Uh, fortunately, uh, there was an oil tanker uh, that was uh, within about 30 kilometers of, of where we were and made the distress call. And they responded to the Mayday call. And um, five, six hours later, we were aboard the Ardmore Sealifter with Captain Wendell Hendricks, who, uh, who took us back over the course of uh, six, seven days it took to get back to, uh, to, to North America. And he, uh, he dropped us off in New York City. So it was, uh, it was a difficult moment uh, where a dream to cross the ocean was uh, scuttled. But um, at the, uh, you know, in the end, when you reflect back and you think on it, nobody was hurt. We, we lost the boat. Boundless met her destiny at the, uh, the bottom of the ocean, but uh, nobody was hurt. I feel horrible for my cousin, the captain, uh, Jeff Fairbank, who put so much time and so much effort into, into that trip. So while that, that adventure is not going to happen for the next, uh, a retry of it isn't going to happen for the next little bit, according to my mother, uh, <laughs> so they they have they have unequivocally said you are not to do that while we are walking this earth. So if and when that were to change, then uh, I, I have a feeling I'll, I'll try it again. I'm going to ask for the emotional bit of the story. You're in the water. You've got the life vests on, or the survivor suits on, or are you floating around in the water or are you on a life raft? Are you, I, I mean, the sailboat sank, boundless met her end, as you said, but did the oil tanker arrive in time before she went down? Yeah. So the, the oil tanker arrived. We never were in the water. There was no concern about that uh, whatsoever. Um, so yeah, life jackets were always on if you were, you were out of the cabin. So you were, we were always, we, we were very uh, cautious. Uh, we had a lot of safety protocols in place. There was never a concern that we were going to uh, 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 call it quits at that moment in our, of our, our lives. Um, so no concern there. They, they, they threw down a, uh, uh, a Jacob's ladder uh, to the the to the boat, and we we hustled up that, and uh, and then uh, and then you know we we steamed off to to New York. And Boundless was thirty eight feet. So that's reasonable size, right? That's a pretty small boat to uh, to do what we were doing. But it, it you know it was just it was just. It was one of those things in life that was unfortunately not meant to be. And so, um, again, you know, no regrets that we, uh, we, we tried it. I just uh, deep sympathy for, for, for my most awesome cousin. And maybe we could touch on the second May Day call of your life that you had to make, Neil, bravely. This one was from an airplane. Maybe we talk a little bit about that, then we'll go back to the food bank conversation. <laughs> sure. I'll just, you know, I had one of those experiences where we didn't know the landing gear was down or not. So the landing gear uh, lights weren't lighting up. So you do a mayday call and, and you let people know, hey, I've got a, I got a problem. And, and then you find out how you deal with an, an emergency situation. And do you deal with it calmly or do you panic? And in both situations, um, my reaction had, had was was much more on the calm side of things, and if you think about that, and you sort of uh, bring it into leadership styles, 
you know, a, a leader in, in my mind always needs to be rowing in the opposite direction of the team, meaning when they are chaotic, you are calm. And when they are calm, you are the ones uh, rattling the chains a little bit and stirring things up. And, and, that, and that, that can make leadership uh, lonely and difficult, um, but at the same time is kind of what you need to do if you want to progress. And so you think about the pandemic and what the Daily Bread was, was going through, particularly at the beginning, where you had staff who were frightened, who didn't know uh, what we should be doing. That was a moment where we needed, as a leadership team, to be voices of calm and comfort. And, uh, and prior to that, the, the questions were around, how do we grow? How do we, uh, how do we advocate better? How do we do additional research? Um, how do we draw in the funds to be able to make sure that we get additional food out to people? And, and you're stirring things up. But there are moments uh, to, uh, and, and generally they are the opposite of where the, the team is at, that the leader needs to be at. And uh, both of those Mayday calls, I think, would be in that, that category. Absolutely. And I think, I mean, in my personal experience, you never know how you're going to react in an emergency. You think you know, but then yeah. when you're in it, you don't know. And and good for you, because I think that take charge, be calm, don't jump into the pool with the drowning individual. You have to be analytical and focused and calm. And I'm sure that's why the Daily Bread Food Bank came through this and continues to come through this, if you will, so astoundingly well. Well, one thing to be clear, I I don't believe, you know, so we're, we're, uh, we're, we're December 2nd, 2021. My sad prediction is that um, the we will not level off at the number of food bank clients for another two years, um, and that will be our peak. That is predicated on the history of 2008, where our peak was 2011. And, uh, um, and so using that history, our clients are the first ones to be kicked out of the economy and the last ones to be brought back in. At the same time, they would have incurred debt um, that needs to be uh, repaid. You have the end of, of social programs like CERB, and you have the end of eviction moratoriums. And so I am, uh, I'm nervous about uh, the next uh, couple of years. We're, we're managing now, but think about two years from now when life is back to normal for so many people. Will they remember how we as Canadians came together when the shutdown first happened? Will they go back to that sense of urgency and respond in such a uh, compassionate uh, way? And no. I mean, I think that history would dictate that, no, I'm good. Everything's good. Look at how well we're all doing, except that food insecurity was there before the pandemic. The pandemic has amplified it. And it, as you've just so um, astutely explained, it doesn't go away just like that. It's not a magic wand. So our hope is, you know, if my prediction's correct, and I hope I'm wrong, um, that two years we start to, to, to level off and maybe start to decline. It will only happen um, if, we, if we have, a, have an honest, hard look at the underlying social policies that have got us into the situation where far too many Canadians have a lack of resiliency. 
Um, it just shouldn't have been the case that our lineups were around the block within two weeks. That meant there was, you know, people did not have uh, a couple of weeks worth of, of savings even and, and, uh, and, and could, could survive. And so um, we've got, we, we, there's so much that we need to do. The, the, the hopeful part that I have out of it is we've been through this difficult time together. We've seen how close poverty is to, to one another. My hope is that we start to make the investments that we need to um, because there becomes the political will to do it. Now, you think back to this last election that we had, federal election that we had, it was one of the first times that the parties, all of them, were talking about affordability. That didn't happen in any other election. And, of course, it was talked to about from, a, from an inflation perspective, um, but it was also about affordable housing. It was about child care. Um, these are now kitchen table issues that are not a group of, of uh, advocates you know, shouting from, from, from a distance. They are real and in our neighborhoods. And so I'm hopeful that, uh, that they'll start to be changed. As are all of us listening, and we will... Again, I'm going to ask you to repeat it again, Neil, just because. Let's talk about the best thing that anybody can do to help the Daily Bread Food Bank and the advocacy that you stand for that you are fighting so hard for. Oh, it's just so simple. Call, get in touch with any elected official of any level of government and tell them, now's the time. Today's the day to build a better Canada. Today's the day to implement the poverty reduction strategy. Fabulous. Are there countries in the world, Neil, that you look at and say, these folks are doing it well? These people, they've made changes, they've advocated for changes. Are there, are there places that are doing it well that you, that you look at and say, wow, this is where we need to go? Yeah, I think, um, first of all, I'm a, a very proud Canadian. Um, I think we have a, a lot to be uh, proud of. Um, but I, I think in that, one of the things that I'm proud of is how humble Canadians are, uh, that we're willing to look at other countries and say, you know what, um, we don't have, you know, we, have, we still can learn from others. So you think about uh, from an affordable housing perspective, what the Netherlands have done, from a social policy perspective, uh, what some of the Scandinavian countries have done, from a food recovery perspective, what France has uh, recently implemented. So there are, um, there are the models out there. You know, none of this requires additional consultation or research to do. We know what the, uh, the, the solutions are that result in a balance between making sure that there are decent social policies in economies that thrive. Um, that's, that's kind of where I would, I would love to, to, to see us go. Excellent. So can you, for for my benefit and for the benefit of the listeners, what is the poverty reduction strategy all about? Because it might be the first time some of the listeners are are hearing it. So what is it? What's it all about? Maybe just give us some context for that so people can really understand what you mean. Sure. Um, so the federal government has a poverty reduction strategy that says they want to reduce poverty by 50% by the year 2030, okay. which is an ambitious uh, target. And I would encourage, actually, I'm going to put a plug in here um, for a different podcast. The Daily Bread did a very short 12-part uh, uh, podcast on the poverty reduction strategy so that people can can really dive into it and because and, it's, it's multifaceted and it's complex. I learned so much by experts coming in and talking about the different strategy. So I can't do 12, 12 uh, podcasts into a single clipped answer, but, but in general, 
Uh, the poverty reduction strategy has that, that ambitious goal, 50% by the year 2030. And it says the way that we need to get uh, there are through things like uh, the, those pillars that I spoke about earlier, affordable housing, income securities, and pathways to employment. And for people who want to listen to your 12 episodes, where and how can they find this? That you, you did your own Daily Bread Food Bank podcast. Yeah, they, they can, uh, wherever they get their uh, their pods, they can see, they can listen to the 2030 project. And uh, and it's, I learned a lot. I've been in the sector for, for uh, I don't know, some just over 20 years. And I, I got to say, there were a lot of experts who came onto that uh, that podcast hosted by Dave Trafford. And, uh, and I, I walked away learning more about basic income, learning more about um, the uh, uh, about uh, affordable housing than than you know I I knew before going into the podcast. Fantastic. Well, we'll encourage everybody to please listen to that, and I will, because Thank I you. have a lot. I certainly have a lot to learn, and it would put all of this in such a bigger context for all of us. Um, Neil, do you sit down with the mayor of this city, John Tory, on a regular basis to talk about this stuff? John Tory seems like the kind of individual who really wants to make this work. We do, um, and I think he has been an incredible ambassador and mayor for uh, for the city, and has uh, has directed city resourcing to systemic causes uh, that uh, that are important, like the development of affordable housing, and so. Uh, I we I haven't had a whole lot to be optimistic about recently, but there's been glimmers of hope, and so um, so you know one of them was just uh, just a couple of weeks ago, where almost all but it was all but two councillors voted in favor of inclusionary zoning. They all said you know when new developments are going up within those new condominium towers, there ought to be affordable housing based on people's incomes. And, uh, and so that was, that was monumental. And that's a, uh, uh, a policy directive that housing advocates have been asking for, for decades and decades. And, uh, and I was really pleased to see that. That will see more uh, affordable housing built. I've, I've seen the mayor uh, put uh, his money where his mouth is when it comes to affordable housing uh, and close to a billion dollars at a local level. And so you're not seeing that. I mean, but housing, let's not forget, when things were better, when there were co-ops across the country, that's when there was real federal money. Uh, and it was the 1990s that uh, the federal government made the decision to get out of affordable housing. They're coming back into it now through housing supplements. But uh, when they made that decision, we went through a period of some 30 years of not developing affordable housing. Or, or, or at least nowhere near. So there's 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 uh, there is a national affordable housing strategy. I would like to see that uh, continue to be uh, implemented. And then from the income perspective, that's where you really want to talk with the province and say, listen, the poverty line is about eighteen hundred dollars a month for for uh, for an individual. And again, going back to disability, their income is about twelve hundred dollars. That's the simple reality. 
nobody's getting rich off the system. You know, one of the things that does drive me nuts is when individuals say, you know, there's a whole bunch of people who aren't taking jobs or who are, uh, you know, lazy and feeding off the system, getting milking the system. That just doesn't happen. Anybody who says that hasn't been anywhere near poverty or those that are experiencing it. And uh, and so I'd like the province to have a, a really uh, honest look at uh, at where things are at in, in terms of income supports. Absolutely. And did what's what's your opinion then of the CERB program, CERB or CRB? Did it alleviate this a little bit from your lens? It sure did. Um, you know, I can't imagine our country if we did not have that program. It was needed. It was an immediate reaction. Uh, it was a gutsy thing to do, and I'm glad we did it. We needed it. So now here's the longer-term benefits of that. The longer-term benefits were that we had a bit of an opportunity to look at what would a basic income look like across the uh, across the country. And you can see that uh, a basic income tax back for, for those that have... Um, additional incomes, can result in more people uh, moving out of poverty. So I think that it served its purpose at the time. Uh, It demonstrated what could be. Uh, I was terribly disappointed that the province, uh, one of the first actions was to stop the the research projects on basic incomes that were in place in Hamilton and Smith Falls. Um, There there was significant research that was being done at the time. And uh, and so it gave us a bit of a, a taste of what could be. And you think about when somebody has a basic income, when they have uh, that security, when they know, okay, I've got my housing and my food taken care of, they start to make better decisions. They start to think about the future versus the immediate concerns of of today. And going back to your original question, Meritori is not often asked about basic income because it's not a, a city initiative, but he will tell you privately that he absolutely supports a basic income. He recognizes the benefits of it. And there is an individual who believes in a free market who wants to see social programs in place that uh, that help everyone in the community thrive. Is there anything else we could be doing to support this in terms of the conversation we're just having now? Is there anything else we could be doing? Well, I mean, the quick answer was the poverty reduction uh, program, but it's it's looking at the platforms of each of the the parties and and understanding are they going to be doing those three things? Are they going to make sure that affordable housing gets built now? Are they going to make sure that there are decent income supports? And are there good are the pathways to good employment? You know, not precarious employment, not employment that you know is, has, where somebody has to cobble together a couple of jobs. Like everybody who has a job working sort of 35 hours a week, 40 hours a week, ought to be able to survive in this city. And that's not the case right now. Absolutely. And then it also brought me to thinking about mental health and that when you're saying if somebody is secure, that they have their housing and they have their food, they'll make better choices. You also worry about, you know, if you feel like you're on a treadmill of just trying to somehow survive every day of your life, where does that go for people's mental health? It's all so connected. It's absolutely connected. And um, my personal opinion, I'm not a, a mental health uh, expert, so to be very, very clear. But what I have seen, and again, it's when we start talking about it, 
You think about maybe it was 10, 15 years ago where the Bell Let's Talk program came out in a serious way and started to make it okay to have conversations. And so we we had conversations. And what ended up happening was when those conversations were had, when we saw that mental health issues were closer to, to home, the elected officials started to, to respond to that and begin to, and I say begin because they've still got a long way to go, begin to make policy decisions um, that would benefit so many people in uh, in, in the uh, the province. So it, we're we're just starting to have those conversations around affordability and around uh, poverty. Excellent. And businesses that are hiring people, I mean, they they too play a large role in this in terms of benefit programs, gig economy, contract versus full time. What, in your opinion, Neil, do you think the businesses might be able to do to to help? to make affordable living somewhat more possible based on what they're paying their people or how they're treating their people? The uh, businesses need to have a great workforce and you can't have a great workforce unless you have affordable housing uh, in the community. So businesses can get alongside the development of of, uh, decent affordable housing. It's in their best interest uh, to do it. I think that there is an opportunity for for businesses to have honest uh, conversations when it comes to issues of diversity and equity. We know that poverty touches the BIPOC community more heavily uh, than uh, uh, other communities. And so as they are making recruitment uh, choices, putting an equity lens on those, uh, those choices um, I think is is probably a uh, an opportunity that uh, that they have, and we want those corporations to thrive. We want them to do well. When they do well, they're going to hire more. And so let's make sure that they are set up with uh, good policies that support those businesses. Let's make sure that there is decent, affordable housing so that there is a workforce to be able to support those businesses. And, uh, and in turn, let's, uh, let's give those businesses the opportunity to implement diversity and equity programs. And if you, you know, looking at the last year and a half, it has been a, a number of businesses, primarily in the United States, that have put calls out for diversity and equity programs and started to um, call out issues of justice and and haven't been afraid to uh, to take difficult stands. Look at uh, Colin Kaepernick and, uh, and Nike as an example. Um, that they are they are willing to do that. And mm-hmm. uh, and and that that bravery, I think, is uh, is important. We'll start to uh, to help out. They're not the only solution, you know. It's business, it's government, it's and it's private, but uh, uh, citizens. Thank you. And Neil, what does bravery look like to you? You know, I, I I've never been asked that question, so I'm probably going to respond now, and 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 then a half hour from now say, oh, I wish I said it differently. <laughs> But, you know, I think um, bravery to me in the context of the work that, uh, that I get to, to do um, means that you, you need to, to, to stand up and alongside individuals and face down some, some pretty daunting systemic challenges that we've talked about all throughout this, this hour. And sometimes that's not popular. And there are times where I am, I literally am, am shaking at the knees 
uh, about a conversation that I need to have or a push that I need to, to, to make. And working through that, focused on the mission first, a mission that, that, uh, that can inspire, a mission that says that nobody should go hungry and that we have a, a vision of communities that thrive, that, can, that can, uh, can be the fuel that you need to be able to, uh, to, to get through those, those difficult uh, situations. I love that answer. I don't think you're going to regret that answer at all. So, Neil, I'm going to ask how everybody can help you. This is the please call out if they want to follow you, if it's a hashtag, it's a website, how can they make donations? And then, obviously, we'll wrap it with the poverty reduction strategy and, last but not least, that letter that needs to go out into government. But let's uh, let's have you... Give us all of the connection points so that everybody who's been inspired by this conversation can help you. Well, first, before I before I do that, the, those ads, I just want to say thank you uh, to you for, uh, for for bravely doing this podcast and allowing more and more people to know about the reality of what's going on and how they can can assist. So, thank you for uh, for this. Um, I, I I'm hopeful that after listening to this, people will will visit uh, dailybread.ca that they'll download the 2030 Project podcast. I'm hopeful that they will call their elected official. Those are all the advocacy things that people can uh, can do. I hope that when they, they're walking the aisles of, uh, of uh, their grocery store next week with their child, that they'll say, you know, there's, there's some people who can't make that choice today that are that that are really are unable to uh, to to purchase what we're purchasing in our, our our basket how about you help me pick some of the food that we really like to have and uh, and we make sure somebody else gets that and uh, and you have those kinds of generational conversations because poverty ought not to be generational we, we ought to be able to uh, to to stop that so those are those are some of the things that I'm hopeful people will be inspired to do after listening to this Neil, thank you from the bottom of my heart for coming on and for educating me and the listeners. And thank you for what you do with the Daily Bread Food Bank every single day and with all of the advocacy programs that you're involved in. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Breaking Brave. For updates between episodes, please visit my website, marilynbarefoot.com. You can also find me at... Marilyn Barefoot. That's it for today. See you next time.